online family. Thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. I'm Ryan Gagnon. We're going to be hearing today from Pastor Michael Lockstam for as he continues our sermon series, Can You Hear Me? Learning How Prayer Works. We've prayed about how best to meet our community with the gospel message of Jesus. We believe this digital component is a way of meeting that community here on the internet. That's you. We hope God uses it to both encourage and challenge you. We also ask that you serve a local church body. Remember, you can't be the church by yourself. A poll done by The Guardian recently found that one in five adults pray despite saying they're not religious at all. They said a crisis or personal tragedy was the reason for their prayer because they sought to be comforted. It makes sense that feeling like they're losing control of a situation would drive some people to seek control from God, even though they don't believe He exists. So what about Jesus? He was fully God and fully man. Was he ever in crisis? If so, did he pray? And what can we learn from that if he did? Thankfully, the answers to my questions are yes, yes, and a lot. Let's listen in together as we learn from John 17 that Jesus' example in prayer shows us a glorious vision of God's love in the midst of crisis. morning, church. Are we there this morning, church? Good morning. Hey, um, I'm excited. This is um, the end. The end? It's not the end. This is the last sermon that I'm going to be sharing with you in, in this series before we move on. Um, and I, I, I wanted to ask you, have you ever had that experience of a magician or um, I'm trying to think of the Christian word for it? Um, an illusionist. Yeah, we can't talk about magicians. Uh, have you ever had that experience where a magician has explained to you what he is going to do? He's not, he hasn't told you how he's going to do it. He's just explained to you, like, I am going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear, or whatever it was. Like, where, where he, is, he said, this is what I'm about to do, and you've said, yeah, right, that's, that's not going to work. And then have you had the experience where he does something and it seems like he did what he said he was going to do. And, you know, two minutes before, you didn't think that it was possible. But now you're looking at the evidence that, yeah, he, he, he did it. Like, he said he was going to do it, and then he did. I didn't think he could do that. I didn't think that things happened this way. Um, I think that a lot of times, or I think that when we get to heaven, I think that's going to be our experience with God. Because when we look at the world, we say, God, there is so much pain there, is so much thing, there are so many things that are wrong. How could you ever use any of this for good? And he says, that's what I'm going to do. And, and as bad as it gets, all the sorrow and all the pain that's in the world for you personally, all the pains in the world across countries, like how can you turn this into good? God, this, this doesn't make any sense. How can you use this to show how kind you are? How can you use my suffering for good? And he doesn't tell us, well, sometimes he'll tell us how he's going to do it, but it doesn't really make sense. And I don't think that on this side of heaven we're going to get it, but I think that there's going to be a moment where all of us, the whole of creation, every man, woman, child, for all of history is going to stand before God and go, 
I didn't know you could do that. Like all of these things that I thought were overwhelming, like now I see in light of you and who you are, like you did it. You took all the bad in the world and you redeemed it. You bought it and you transformed it into something new. And I didn't think that was possible. It's like that moment when a magician, an illusionist gives you their turn. So this morning as we've asked the question, can you hear me? We've answered yes. God hears our prayers. And we've talked about how God interacted with Jacob in his life, and we've talked about how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But have you ever had those people that you think, you know, okay, like you can tell me all the right things, but let me see how you do it? I want to look today at Jesus' example of prayer, and we're going to be in John chapter 17. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to open to John chapter 17. If you need a Bible, um, you can use one of these ESV Bibles. They say the story on the front of them. We're going to be in John chapter 17. I'm going to turn there as well. It's on page 748. 748, John 17. And last week we studied what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I submitted to you that it's the Disciples' Prayer. Um, today, John 17, I think, is the Lord's Prayer. But before we listen into what Jesus is praying, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we've set aside from the rest of everything else that's going on in our lives to turn and focus our attention solely on you. Lord, as we read your word and what your focus was on the night that you were betrayed, God, we pray that you would continue to shape us by your example. Lord, would your spirit be moving, and God, would you soften our hearts to respond to you? God, would you help us to hear clearly what it is that you want to speak to us this morning? Would your spirit speak clear through the word? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So John chapter 17, and we're going to see that Jesus' example in prayer shows us a glorious vision of God's love in the midst of crisis. John chapter 17, page 748. I'm going to read the first five verses to get us started. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they who know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me pause there. In the context of John, in this letter, this is a biography that John writes about Jesus' life. And he's one of Jesus' best friends. And as he's going, he goes and goes, and he's describing all of these things that, that happen in Jesus' life, all the signs that he gave. He goes through uh, seven or eight signs, depending on how you count them. And then he gets to the night before Jesus died, and everything slows down. It's like you're, you're watching Netflix, and you go to like half speed. And it's like he's been doing all these things, and the story's moving along, and then pause, and just records everything Jesus said that night. 
And so we read John chapter, or Miss Rodlin read John chapter 16 at the end of that, is right before. He's talking to his disciples. This is the last chance he's going to get to talk to these guys he's invested his life in for the last three or four years. This is his last chance to invest any wisdom in them. He says, hey, in the world you're going to have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And when he had spoken these things, he turns his attention to God and immediately starts praying. So that's what's going on. They've just celebrated the Passover. They've celebrated communion for the first time. And now Jesus starts to pray. And what does he pray for to start with? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Hey, God, Father, glorify me which is a little bit of a strange concept for us. Um, some of our more Reformed brothers know the catechism, and the catechism says man's highest purpose is to give glory to God. And sometimes that feels a little stingy. Like, what do you mean my highest purpose is to give glory to God? Like, what does, that, what does that even mean? That's not connected to my real life. But that's where Jesus starts. God's purpose is his glory. And that's a church word, isn't it? What, is, what does glory mean? I'll, what, do you, what are some synonyms for glory? What do, you, what do you think of when I say the word glory? Honor. Honor. <laughs> Righteousness. Triumph. Triumph. All right. Power. Yeah. God's glory is, is, is when he shows himself for who he is. When we see ourselves in light of what he is and who he is, is his glory. There's times that we experience a very small, um, we experience this in a very small measure when we see a beautiful sunrise or a sunset. There's times where we experience God's glory in nature and it's supposed to point us to him and who he actually is. And sometimes we get confused and we worship the created thing, the sunrise, the sunset, the earth, the waterfall instead of God. But Jesus says, hey, glorify me. What's Jesus getting ready to do? Die. And it's just like a heart attack. He falls over dead. Murder. Murder. He's getting ready to suffer. He's getting ready to struggle. He's getting ready to be mocked and spit on while he's doing the very thing to show his love to humanity. When, when, when Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me, it wasn't this picture. It was to go to suffering. The suffering was the means that he had to travel through to get to the place of glory. And so when Jesus prays, God, glorify me, he knows that it's not just about like, you know, walking around in heaven with halos playing our harps. He's got work to do. And it's work that he said he's already accomplished. Does that strike you as odd from this side of the cross? Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. And he says, Father, I've done the work. I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And from, he's lived as a man. He's, he's done what God has asked him to do. And he's accomplished it. And, and he's getting ready to go in. And he says, Father, glorify me. Help them to see me the way that I have been. 
Have you ever run into somebody, maybe you've had this experience, you've run into somebody and you didn't know who they were and you kind of talk with them as like your average Joe, whatever, and then somebody goes, you were talking to them? You, you talked to that person? It's like, yeah, I didn't know who it was. And it's like some business owner or somebody who's big in the community and you didn't know, it was just a dude. Like there's times where we come to Jesus or times where we come to God and we say, you know, I, I kind of know who you are or I'm just trying to deal with you on my own terms, but I don't really get who you are. Jesus says, give them a clear picture of who I am. Let them see the glory that I had with you before I came to earth. Help them to see that I am God. God's purpose is his glory in creation. And he says, eternal life is knowing God. And this is, this is a separate sermon. This is a separate sermon series. This is a book, at least one. Like this is, there's so much packed in here that I would love to camp out here for the rest of the time, and I'm not going to. Just to suffice it to say that Jeremiah 9, Romans 1, and here in, in Matthew 7, or in Matthew 7 that we read already this morning, like this is a thing. Eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God for who he really is. In the same sense that if I told you about um, my dad and his luscious locks of wavy blonde hair, y'all would say, uh, have you met your dad? He doesn't have long hair. It, it, we say, I want to worship God, and I don't know who he is. There's a disconnect. Knowing God is eternal life. Knowing who he is. And this echoes for me Jesus' instruction. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I give you the blank check of what you want to do, and I, I trust that you're going to do the best thing, whatever I have to go through to glorify you in my life. I give that to you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in a crisis moment, we'll, we'll take our eyes off of Jesus for a second and I'll ask you to reflect. In a crisis moment, when things are falling apart, when it feels like you're, you're afraid and you're trying to figure out, my, my question for you is whose purpose are you chasing? Are you chasing God's purpose and trying to glorify himself in the world and trying to show every being in his creation the content of his character? Or is, I, just, I just need to make it through today, God. Just let me get it. In a crisis, whose purpose are we chasing? Let's continue reading. He's not finished praying yet. He has a lot more to say in verse 6. And let me just pause because some of the grammar here gets really confusing. And he's going to say a lot of words and it's going to be hard to read. I'm just telling you up front, this is hard to read. But we're going to go back through it. We're going to go slow. I'm going to pick up some big ideas as we go through, all right? So John chapter 17, beginning verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them your words, that, the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We're going to pause there. Do you see his focus in this of, I have given to them your name? Jesus turns now from praying for God's purpose in the world to praying for his, his disciples, his personal disciples. We know them as the apostles. They're the 12 minus 1, the 11. Judas isn't around at this point. He's not dead yet, but Jesus says, I lost him. His perspective on time is incredible to me. Every time I come to this, is the third time I think I've preached this passage, and every time I, I, I am just amazed at how Jesus prays and what is here. Sorry, that was a side note. I'll just say <coughs> that <laughs> he's, he's, he's focused on the Father's name. I've given them their name, and I've kept you in, their, in your name. We don't have much of a concept in our culture for what a name is. The best that I can figure is, is, is a grandfather passing his name through the Father and to the Son is a generational thing. If I were to say to you the name Bin Laden is a surname, it's a last name, but that name has a reputation, doesn't it? You had an internal reaction from me saying Bin Laden. Some of you would have an internal reaction from me saying the name Trump. Some of you would have an internal reaction from me saying the word Obama. There are names that do have a reputation. So what does it mean for, God, for Jesus to have kept us in the Father's name? The first question I'd ask is, what is the Father's name? Exodus, he shares it with Moses. Yahweh, there we go, Yahweh. And Yahweh is, is, is just so fascinating. Grammatically, in the Hebrew, it makes no sense whatsoever. And the best way that we can translate it is, I am that I am, or I am that I have been, or I have been that I am. Like it's the, the, the tenses of how it all works together. Yahweh means, hey, I exist. I am. I'm not like you. I'm not confined to your world, but I am. You want to know who I am? I am. You want to seek me? Seek I am. I, 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 I am. If that's challenging to you, I think it was challenging on purpose that God revealed his name in this way. He doesn't, he's, he's not necessarily revealing aspects of his character. He's just re revealing his existence. And this is a presupposition, which is a big word. This is a presupposition of scripture. This is something that's assumed in the Bible. The Bible begins in the beginning at God. Doesn't have any reason to explain or prove that God exists. It's just in the beginning, God, and then the world, and we have to deal with that. So the name of God is his, his, his character. And this is, this is a big idea that's throughout all of Scripture, but I believe that God in creation, in our lives, in our world, in the things that he's doing on earth here, I think that God is trying to display his loving kindness, his character to all of creation. Not just humanity, we'll, we'll get to that in the end, but also to the angelic beings. He's, he's got a point he's trying to prove. Y'all think you know who I am, you think you can be God, you haven't seen the extent of my patient love. That's what he's doing in the world. 
So Jesus prays, I've kept them in your name. I've kept them in your name. I've kept them in your name. And he's saying those, he's praying for those who turn from themselves to follow Jesus belong to him. I've kept them. You've given them to me. They're mine. Right? Those who turn to Jesus in faith belong to him. They're his possession. They're his bride, if we were going to go deeper into the New Testament. They belong to him. So in a crisis, do we remember who we belong to? That we belong to the I am and that we belong to Jesus. Like we are not our own. You don't own your life. You're not trying to, like, I know it feels sometimes like you're just trying to figure it out. You're trying to make it work. But you don't own your life. It's his. If you turn to him and trust him and what he's revealed to you about himself, about salvation, that you trust him for his sacrifice, you belong to him. So in a crisis, when you're looking at the scariest thing in your life, do you remember whose you are? Do you remember who you belong to? That's Jesus' prayer for his apostles. Hey, there's going to be a lot of things that they're going to come through. There's going to be a lot of trouble in their world, but they're mine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your reputation be seen in us. Let's continue reading. In verse 13. But now I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let me pause real quick. This verse, this verse is the why. If, if it struck you as odd that Jesus is kind of teaching his disciples and going through, and then all of a sudden he turns around and starts praying, like, wouldn't that be awkward if I just, you know, I, I don't know, in this situation it might be normal for me to just turn my attention to God and start praying. But I'm just saying, if you, if you wanted to know why we can hear all these words, why we get to hear this inner dialogue between Jesus and the Father, is this. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, this is why I speak them in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Overhearing God's prayer for these people is going to bring joy to them. God is concerned about what's going on. This is the reason why. So verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We'll pause there. We are set apart. We as the people of God who've turned to trust Jesus, we're set apart by the word. If we're going to live in accordance with the Bible, the world is going to reject us. It's a given. Like, it's just going to happen. We can assume that, that on a nationwide scale, at some point, and we've been blessed in this country to not have so much of that, but we can assume the default position of the world of governments in the, in the default position of your neighbors who don't know God is that they will hate you because you're trying to follow God. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to follow the Bible and what God's revealed to you, and they're like, I don't like that. I don't like you. You're weird. You've got five kids. That don't make any sense. 
You go to church, you, you waste an hour and a half every Sunday. Do you know how much golf you can get in in an hour and a half? You know how many fish you can land? Well, if you're me, you can't actually land any fish in an hour and a half. But, but, but the point is the same. The world is seeking to please themselves. They're seeking to worship themselves. They're seeking to meet their own needs in a way that feels good to them. And we're saying, I'm turning to God and I want to trust him. And they will hate you because you have found a different source of sustenance. See, I'm inclined to think that my coffee and my cereal in the morning is my sustenance for the day. If you have seen me on a day where I have not had coffee and cereal in the morning, you will also adhere to this. But what Jesus is saying here is, God, my word, or he's saying, Father, I have given them your word, and that is what's going to set them apart. That's what's going to give them strength for the day. This is their daily bread. And that was the example that he set for us. Give us this day our daily bread. And just one more note of observation. If your diet, if you've got a special diet, like you automatically are hated, aren't you? Like if you're on, a, and I'll pick on vegans because I don't think we have any in here, but like if somebody, I'm a vegan, like, oh, yeah, you're vegans, or, or, or whatever it is, is, if you have a special diet, like there's a, a, an area of contempt already. I just say that again to illustrate that if we are feeding ourselves on the word of God and the world is feeding itself on self-pleasure, then they're going to hate us because we have a different diet. So give us this day our daily bread and, do you see this? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus prays for his apostles, deliver them from the evil one. I'll just note here that the word there is the exact same as we read in Matthew 6 last week. Deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. The structure is the same. It's the same word. The English Standard Version that we use on Sunday mornings in Matthew 6, translated as the uh, keep us from evil, and John 17, translated as the evil one. It's the same idea. But Jesus is praying what he told him to pray. Keep him from the evil one. Why? Because you sent me. Father, you sent me to do your work. I've accomplished it. I am now sending them to do your work. It's not just sustenance for the day so that you can make it through the day. And it's not just a diet to keep you distinct from the world. And it's not just uh, deliverance from evil so that you can feel righteous about yourself. It's because God has a purpose for you to follow. Have you met spiritually constipated people? This is one of my favorite words. This went over really well when I was uh, teaching youth in Indiana. Uh, spiritually constipated people. Do you, do you know what I mean when I say that? These are people who spend all week and all day and all Sunday, and they're just taking in, feed me, feed me, feed me, take me, take it. Jesus, I want to I live with you. Give me everything. Like, I just need more of you, more of you, more of you, more of you. And then they don't do anything. They get all of this good stuff, and it's good stuff. I'm not saying it's bad stuff. I'm not telling you not to read your Bible. It's good stuff. I wish you'd read your Bible more, but I'm saying there are people who know doctrine down pat, but they don't love people. They know the doctrine of God's grace, and they won't show it to their neighbor when they, don't, when they reject God. Grace, I, I, I pray that we're not spiritually constipated, that that which we have received from God, we steward well. <laughs> Didn't think I was going to be preaching on the digestive track this morning. But what we receive from God is a gift to nourish us and to move us and propel us 
on mission. Sanctify them in truth, verse 17. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may also be sanctified in truth. I'm just going to say real quick, I think Jesus limited himself in some ways to set an example for us. He did some things for us he didn't have to do, but he wanted to set a good example, and he did. Jesus, even in life, living as a man, understood his leadership role. I think it's fascinating. That's a side note to what I'm going through. So in a crisis, <laughs> where do you find your nourishment? It's been a stressful week for me. Uh, this weekend, my mom's in the hospital. Um, I found my nourishment in a big thing of cake last night. In a crisis, where do we find our nourishment? Some of us, it's food. Some of us, it's unhealthy relationships. I mean, I could go through a list of vices. I don't need the list. I feel like you probably know when I ask the question. Where do you go for nourishment? And do you understand that the nourishment that God's providing for us is to give us strength for the mission. This last section blows my mind every time. Let's read it together. Verse 20, John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you have turned to Jesus in faith, if you've said, I believe that Jesus came and he died and his sacrifice covered my sins and built that relationship between me and God, if you have made that profession of faith, profession of faith, do you understand Jesus is praying for you in these verses? Thousands and thousands of years before you were ever born, just like Stephen asked, thousands of years before you were ever born, do you realize that this is you in the Bible? Like not, like not you as a concept, you as a person. Jesus can do that. He kind of knows everything. I do not ask for these only. I'm not just asking for the 12. The, the apostles, they've got a special job. I'm going to spend some time praying for them. They've got a special job. I'm going to send them out. They've got a lot of hard work to do. They're going to have a lot to overcome. I'm not just praying for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
so that the world may believe that you may have sent me. Jesus prays for our unity because unity facilitates God's purpose and our mission. Unity, us being together, us having the same idea, or us, us gathering around and saying, I want to serve Jesus. Unity. Unity facilitates God's purpose and our mission. You know this. You, you've, you've done uh, team uh, exercises. You've done, what do they call them, group projects in middle school? Is that what it is, group projects? And it's like, we all, we're all, we all want to earn an A, but we all have really different ways about how to do that. Some of us say, all right, I'm just going to sit back because that person's real smart and they're going to do all the work. And some of us say, I've got to get an A. So I'm going to get up here and i got to work and i got to work and i got to work. And I'm like, well, I don't actually know anything, but I'm going to try and help that person and mediate conflict between the slacker and the overachiever. Like we've all had group projects that didn't go well. Amen? Okay, heading on. We can do that. But imagine if that middle school team like, was unified and they knew what they wanted to accomplish. And it wasn't just about getting the grade. It was about help. It was one of those presentation projects where you got to do the research and then present it. What if it wasn't just about, I want to get a good grade for this, but I want my fellow students to understand the material that I have grasped for myself. And we will work together to proclaim the good news about, um, I don't know, DNA. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around a middle school group project doing that. Sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea of Grace Church doing that. But unity facilitates God's purpose and our mission. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me, because I do believe that, that, that unity has, has been spun off in previous generations to mean uniformity. If you don't dress like me, if you don't talk like me, if you don't think exactly like I do, then we, you are not being unified and you can't be a part of this body. You're being divisive. If you don't sing the same songs that I sing, if you don't read the same books that I read, if you don't come from the same background that I read, like, this is not the Marines. I'm not shaving your hair to look like mine and dad's. <laughs> We come together from diverse backgrounds. We come together from our, our, our family histories are so different. We have different tastes in music. We have different tastes in, in, in interior decorating. We have different tastes in the cars that we drive. We have different priorities in our lives. But if we come together unified around the mission that God has given us, unified around the mission that God has given us, then we answer Jesus' prayer for us on the night that he was to suffer. It strikes me as so interesting that Jesus' prayer, his, the last words that the disciples heard him say to his father before all of the craziness broke through in his life was that the church, his bride, would be unified. And it breaks my heart to see divisions over things that do not matter. And so, Grace, we have gone, we're not just, we are Karis Fellowship Church, and I believe in that, but, but we have cooperated with other churches. Like Baptists, we work better with Baptists than Baptists do. And, and there are other churches that, that, that we want to work with. Like, we're all on the same team. I, I'm, I'm saying too many words, but I want you to understand we're all on the same team. In Ocala, 
in Grace Church, Jesus is praying for our unity, not our uniformity, our unity towards God's mission. God's glory in the world, where we started, God's glory in the world is seen in the church as it faithfully demonstrates God's love and unity. I pray that they'd be unified so that the world may see or may believe that you have sent me. There's a lot of people, there are not a lot of people, but there are people in your life who believe that. I don't know anything about Jesus, but I believe that he came from God. God sent him. That's a good starting point. I pray that they would be unified so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they can come with me and be where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's stuff going on behind the scenes that they can't grasp yet. And I pray that they get to the other side of heaven so that all of the sin and all of the pain and all the suffering that they've been through can be turned around and can be redeemed and be shown to be God's glory in the world. I pray that these people would be with me so that they can get it. They don't get it yet. That's okay. But I pray that you would be faithful to draw them along to the finish line so they can see my glory when I am with you. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. I've made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's one more thing that I'd like to point out. Jesus understands the generational nature of decisions. There are times where we get into our heads and we think that my decisions only affect me and my life. And one of the, I'm a young guy, but one of the things that I'm learning is that that is just not true. That, that as you get married, your decisions affect another adult human being, and as you have children, your decisions affect your children. And that if I choose to make a boneheaded decision, that that is going to affect not only my children, but the children after them. We understand that alcoholism is not necessarily genetically transferred, but we understand that alcoholics more than likely had alcoholic fathers or alcoholic grandfathers. And we understand that we understand that the bad stuff carries down sometimes. And it's not, it's not necessarily have to be genetic to understand that our decisions affect generations after us. And so as Jesus has prayed for his apostles, the people that he's invested his life with, he prays also for the generations of people that are going to accept what he has said and follow them in it. In a crisis, sometimes we get so focused in on what we are doing. We get so focused in on what's going on in my life that I forget that my decisions could affect the impact of what happens generationally. It's not by accident that we take time in our worship gathering to speak directly to Kid Nation. I am fully aware that everything that, all the ministry that we are doing here could be to set that generation up to be a powerful testimony in Ocala. I understand I'm not a native of Florida. I'm not a native of Ocala. And that for me to reach the natives of Ocala is going to be a stretch 
I don't speak the same language. I think in different ways. But my children now are natives. And I'm fully willing to lay my life down and say that if nothing ever happens, if I don't get any credit for anything that happens, that maybe God was setting them up to preach the gospel boldly and to share faithfully. In a crisis, do you understand that your decisions have generational effects? For the bad, yeah, we get that. If I choose to have an affair and get a divorce, like my kids are going to have a different understanding of what a marriage relationship is. But for the good, if I choose to follow God in this moment, I've set an example for my kids. I've set an example for my neighbor who only believes that Jesus was kind of like special a little bit in a crisis moment. And this is, this is kind of putting the pressure on. <laughs> you're like, I'm already in a crisis here, and now you're telling me I've got to think bigger than myself? Like, I'm just... But that's where Jesus' heart was at. That in our unity and the struggle for his purpose, that his name would be known. So Jesus' example in prayer shows us a glorious vision of God's love in the midst of crisis. Do you see it? It can be confusing if you were to read it, but can you see it as we've walked through it together this morning? that God's doing more in the world than we can see. One thing that, that has been impressed upon me as we've gone through this for the last four weeks is that the world is way bigger than I can imagine. I feel like I've had a Jacob moment of seeing heaven and earth connected and going, I think I know how this is going to work out, but God, you might have 10 contingency plans that are better than my solution to the problem. And with his perspective... I can follow his mission. Jesus' example in prayer, how he prayed on the night of his crisis, shows us a glorious vision of God's love in the midst of crisis. So as we are closing now, we'll take a few minutes and reflect. There's a connection card there. On the back of that is a prayer, as a prompt this morning, God. I just invite you to consider how God is speaking to you this morning. Whose purpose are you chasing? Jesus' first request, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. Who do you belong to? Where do you find nourishment and protection? And who else is affected by your response to whatever crisis it is you're facing? Would you pray with me? again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God and his word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.